This is Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I always feel like this part of the year, um, you have permission to gain one or two pounds or, or ten. Uh, again, if you see me with a little bit of weight, it was because there was good food on Thanksgiving. And so I uh, hope you had your fill of uh, tryptophan and... I don't know, nitrates and carbs and sugars, uh, all, the, all the good stuff. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Uh, and as uh, Pastor Brad mentioned, the last in the uh, Minor Prophets series. And so you, you might be coming here this morning saying, whew, you know, uh, we're going to be through the, uh, the Minor Prophets, but hopefully it hasn't gone through you that quickly. Uh, again, Micah, uh, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, this morning, I thought we could play a little game. Uh, famous last words of famous books. Now, I picked books that I think are more familiar. Uh, this morning, I quote the last words of, and I, I guess I can't say until you guess, but the creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. Wow, you guys are so good. Animal Farm by George Orwell. Let me give you another one. But that is the beginning of a new story, the story of the gradual renewal of a man, the story of his gradual regeneration, of his passing from one world into another, of his initiation into a new unknown life that might be the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended. It's a little bit harder. No, not Pilgrim's Progress. Grapes of Wrath is a good guess. How about Crime and Punishment? I'll give you easier ones. I'll give you easier ones. <laughs> of my girls, however long you may live, I never can wish you a greater happiness than this. Little women. Another easy one. The scar had not pained Is someone trying to spoil? <laughs> Whoever did that, come up and, and preach the sermon, please. <laughs> yes, uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, J.K. Rowling. Last one, an easy one. Uh, 
And so as Tiny Tim observed, maybe I could just stop there. <laughs> A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. If you're just joining us, uh, welcome. This morning we are concluding a 12-week sermon series that we started back in September that we have called Divine Intervention, a look at the Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And today we come to the last of the Minor Prophets, the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter, the last sentence, the last word of this short four-chapter minor prophetical book of Malachi. We've made, in my opinion, a quick study of 12 books, 12 difficult books, 12 difficult sermons, pronouncing the judgments of God on Israel and Judah and any nation that would oppose them, suffering the consequences of disobedience, and rebellion against God spoken through the mouthpiece of 12 different prophets. We've called our sermon series Divine Intervention, not because God, in some sense, intervenes in the affairs of humankind that leads to some uh, fortuitous event or miraculous acts. There are certainly those in the Bible. There are numerous stories of divine intervention on the part of God for his people. The parting of the Red Sea. Victory against the Philistines by a young boy named David over Goliath. Or Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. And many, many more. But the Minor Prophets reads more like the other sorts of intervention. More like a family intervention. Where concerned family members intervene to help a loved one over some sort of addiction or to stop unhealthy patterns or behaviors, the minor prophets read like that, of a God who steps in and intervenes on behalf and for the benefit of Israel and Judah from harming and injuring themselves, a God who for the sake of Israel's flourishing intervenes on her behalf to save her from herself. We have, over the last 12 weeks, covered three centuries of minor prophets who had warned the people of impending judgment unless they turned from their wicked ways. I think you would agree that the minor prophets have been anything but minor. If you look at the map, you'll see the pronouncement of judgment on Israel and Judah and these places like Edom and Assyria and Nineveh and Babylon. What we read about in Malachi is nothing new. We've heard it before. The repeated messages of the minor prophets was a call for people to turn away from their sin and return to God. The one who desires to pour out his loving kindness upon them. The 12, the 12 minor prophets railed against issues of social injustice and things like a hypocritical ritualism or going through the motions without hearts, or idolatry, putting first anything or anyone else above God, or spiritual apathy, the message of the book of Malachi. Certainly we can relate to these. These issues hit close to home more than we are comfortable with. Malachi confronted the people of Israel over the sin of spiritual apathy, calling on them to return to the Lord, even as they blame the Lord, as you'll see, for turning away from them. 
By this point in the historical timeline, the people of Israel had been exiled to Assyria and back. The southern kingdom of Judah had been exiled to places like Babylon, experienced a change in leadership from Babylon to Persia, and the Persian king giving permission to return to build the temple and the wall. And again, a hundred years passes, and we find ourselves in the book of Malachi, this last book, this Malachi who speaks as a messenger for God in the fifth century BC, about 420 or 30 years before the New Testament. They go back to Judah, they rebuild the temple, they restore the walls, they were under the political control of others, and economically things were tough as they sought to restore the community. And so if you can imagine during this time, Israel didn't feel very much love from God. Or that's how they felt. Israel didn't feel much like God's chosen people. They felt neglected. They felt ignored. They felt abandoned. And certainly you could see it in their response, their lackadaisical obedience, their waywardness. It's no wonder that the first five verses of the chapter, the first chapter, revolve around the question, does God really love us? Do you ever feel that way? Ever feel like you've been abandoned? Ignored? Forsaken? What do you do when the darkness just doesn't seem to lift? And there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes we look at the current situation we are in or the crisis we're facing. And we interpret these things that have happened because we feel God has abandoned us. It only makes sense that God cannot still be with us and still allow us to go through such difficulty. I mean, it sounds like... um, I mean, how can, it, how can we have the best of both things, right? God be with us and feel like he's abandoned us when we go through such difficulty. You feel like God has left the room when you need him the most. You cry out to God, but all you hear is silence. And so for the Christian, there is perhaps no worse experience, no worse feeling than when God feels distant. Maybe you're there now a life situation, a health crisis, a troubled marriage, financial problems. It's been maybe a very difficult, dark season for you, and you ask, does God really love us? Does God really love me? And sometimes it's our own doing. I get it. It's The darkness that we feel is of our own making because there are certain sinful patterns in our life or there's faulty theology, right? Misconceptions about who God is and and what he does and why he does what he does. Or perhaps there's faulty thinking because we hear the voices of people all around us and, and don't listen enough to the voices that that's spoken to us in the word. Well, the people of Malachi's day, we ask the question, what's going on with the people of Israel? You see, the people in Malachi's day were looking at the world, and they see, maybe like some of us see, 
the presence of evil in the world. They see those without any regard for God not only getting on with life, but they're actually prospering. These other people put God to the test and they escape. This group of people judge that God is no longer worth it. Why serve God if there's no reward? Why obey if God is not holding up to his end of the bargain? Does God really love us? Or perhaps we ask the question, does it really matter what we do? Perhaps you question, uh, you have questions of this variety. Perhaps it's the same whether we are good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. What value is there denying ourselves the pleasures and joys that we desire? We might as well do whatever we want because it really doesn't matter in the way whether we serve God or we serve ourselves. You know, it's easy to understand this perspective. I think it is. It's not just atheists who get cancer. It's not just unbelievers whose businesses fail or whose marriages fall apart. And all the while, it seems like the worst kind of people thrive and succeed and get ahead. Well, that's where the people of Malachi find themselves. Malachi is only four chapters long. And in the first three chapters, there are a series of, of seven questions that go back and forth between God and the people of God. Seven questions and answers in the book of Malachi, particularly expressed in the word how. Seven challenges to God's statements. And I'll go through these quickly. Listen to this exchange between God and the people of Israel that might help you get a better feel of what's happening in Malachi's day. God says, I love you. And the people of God say, yeah, right. How have you loved us? God says, you're not showing me the proper respect I deserve as your father. And they respond, what's the problem? We're still bringing you all the sacrifices you asked for. How have we despised your name? How have we defiled you, polluted the altar? They say, uh, God tells them what's good and evil and what they look like and instructs them to pursue justice. And they answer, where is the God of justice? No difference between those who do right and those who do evil. In verse three of, uh, I'm sorry, verse seven of chapter three, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from, your, from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Or God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that the priests and the Levites can be provided for and the poor fed. And they say, how have we robbed you? What is the use of obedience? Chapter 3, verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You see, the thing is, the people of Malachi's day were not all that bad. They were unlike 
previous generations who did bad. It's not the language that we see here in Malachi of people who are saying that they will not be loyal, but rather of a people who say they will be loyal. A people who said and knew what to do, but just didn't see the value in what they were doing. The people of Malachi were not irreligious. They're not atheists. They believe in God. They have been doing it. They have been practicing religion, strict and particular outward observances. They boasted in the knowledge of the truth, but responding to that knowledge mechanically and technically. If you ask me, they were church-going people and law-abiding citizens. They did and said all the right things, and it's so scary to think about that. They were more concerned about the form than the function, the outward appearances with an absence of the hearts, the external versus the internal, what they were doing instead of why they were doing it. You know, Malachi, it's a story that's not so foreign to us. They questioned God. I don't remember that time when we... You know, I mean, uh, this, these seven statements that you read about in the first three chapters are, are questions, uh, these, these questions of the faithfulness of God. We've done our part, Lord, where, where are you? As I mentioned this morning, we're taking a closer look at this last book, but particularly the last chapter, the last verse, the last sentence, the last word of Malachi. As a response to what is happening in the first three chapters of the book, for this last book would begin what scholars call the 400 years of silence before we would hear again from God in the New Testament and the coming of Christ. It would be the message that would be ringing in the ears of the people of God for four centuries. So in this last chapter of Malachi, he mentions two very well-known figures in Israel's history, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. In verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai for all Israel. In verse 5, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, again, if you know the story of Israel, Moses received the law at Mount Sinai, uh, defining Israel's identity as God's chosen people. If you remember Moses meeting a God on Mount Sinai, God speaking to him in a, in a, fiery, bu in a fiery bush and, and revealing his personal name to Israel, to Moses himself, I am, has sent me to you. Uh, they were known as God's chosen people. They were God's special possession. That was Moses, a very special figure in Israel's history. Elijah the same. Elijah was a prophet. If you remember the uh, transfiguration story where, where um, uh, the disciples, uh, the three disciples see, see Jesus and, and two others. Who is it? It's, it's Moses and Elijah. 
Elijah was a prophet who faithfully, right, again, he faithfully lived by that law, again, um, who had been given the charge of convicting the people to live by that law. And Malachi followed faithfully in Elijah's footsteps. But what Malachi seems to mention is the coming of a greater prophet than Elijah who would call, Eli who would call Israel to repentance, who we come to know in the New Testament as John the Baptist. Malachi finishes with these words. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. To be even more specific, the last word of that last sentence is the word curse. It's the word destruction that we read in the ESV. What an unsettling thought. The Old Testament does not end the way we wish it did. They do not seem appropriate. We think that all novels should end the same way with a happily ever after. But this is not the kind of ending we expect of God's great plan of creation and redemption. Destruction and curse. One commentator, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, acknowledges that this, was, this verse presents a problem. He explains that curse as the last word of the Old Testament so bothered Greek translators of the Septuagint, which is the, just the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament Bible, that they reversed the last two verses of Malachi chapter 4. There you go. You have a, a good and nice ending to the book. A blessing rather than a curse. Uh, he mentions the Masoretes. These are Hebrew scribes who were also troubled by the ending of the book. But rather than reversing the final verses, they repeated the next to the last verse of Malachi after that last verse. So they repeated the second to last verse, and then the last verse, and repeat the second, last, second to last verse again. Blessing got to be the last word. But if we're true to the text, what is Malachi's point? I think it's this. The restoration of Israel cannot come apart from the intervening of God. The restoration of Israel cannot come without divine intervention. God has to intercede. God has to intervene in the affairs of man because the law is, is too difficult to follow, right? It's too difficult to obey. It's too heavy a burden. So the point of Malachi's writing, I think, when he ends with the word curse or destruction, it's this, that the restoration of Israel cannot come apart from the intervening of God, divine intervention, unless God does something about it. There's absolutely no hope. And that's how the Old Testament ends. One of my children asked me, why did you guys choose a sermon series on the minor prophets? It's such a valid question. I can think of several answers. I'll just give you a quick rundown of my five reasons. Uh, one, I think it's by far the most overlooked books of the Old Testament and of, and of the whole Bible. 
Second, I think it teaches us about the sovereignty of God, that God would use even foreign nations, ungodly nations, to teach a lesson sometimes. It teaches us about justice. Pastor Brad talked about the mishpats, the compassion and the mercy of God. I think it teaches us about hope. That there's a time coming when sin will be no more. That things will not always be as we see it. As J.R.R. Tolkien puts it, on that day, everything sad will indeed come untrue. Our tears will be dried, our sorrows will be comforted, our sickness is healed, our losses made more than whole. Let me hold off my last point here, point number five, why I think a sermon series on the minor prophets was in order. How should we then live? We've asked the question, does God really love us? What's the point of living a faithful life? Does it really matter what we do? I think it does. We should. We should listen to Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. We should listen to them. Certainly God has given us the law and the prophets But my friends, the good news is that it's not given to us as a means of our justification or our salvation. In other words, God doesn't give us the law and the prophets to say, this is how you become saved. This is how you become in right standing before God. No. It's given to us as a guide for our steps to be grateful and to live obediently before him. Obedience to God is still the best pathway to true satisfaction and joy. And God's word shows us how we ought to live as strangers and aliens to a watching world. But my friends, if the prophets teach us anything, if Moses and Elijah teach us anything about the Old Testament is that Moses and Elijah don't just instruct us on how we should live. Because you and I both know we've tried that. And we've fallen short. For you see, if Moses and Elijah are there to instruct uh, instruct us on how we should live, then they would bind on us a crushing burden that none of us, not one of us, would be able to bear. But the law and the prophets do and do so well. And there's gospel written all over the minor prophets and all of the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it's this, which is the fifth reason why the minor prophet series was a valid one. Because it teaches us about Jesus. It points us to Christ. They always point us back to Christ who is our only righteousness. You see, in the midst of our own and constant failures, every day, our hope is in the one who would come 400 plus years later. 
430 years of silence, uh, and God would send his one and only son, the son of righteousness. We ask ourselves, does God really love us? Does God really love us? It's written across all the pages of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and certainly in the revealing of his son in the new. For Paul writes these words, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And says, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, Things present nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nothing. Paul says can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you know that God loves you? Look to his son. The one who obeyed the law and the prophets perfectly. He knew we couldn't do it. He knew how often we would fall and fall short. So he sends a son. I love the words so deep. He who did not spare. Does it matter what we do? It absolutely does. God calls us to a life of obedience because of what he has done for us, not as a means for our salvation, but because of our salvation, we express our gratitude to him in our obedience. For John says, if you love me, you will follow what I say. Yes, the book of Malachi ends with this depressing note, a curse, a destruction, And I mentioned two weeks ago that, again, all the books, lots of the books end the same way. They're so depressing. I mean, I think I mentioned the book of Genesis ends, so Joseph died. (laughs) And Malachi ends with this word, curse and destruction. But my friends, these are not the ultimate words of the scriptures. These are penultimate. For in that we read through the gospels and we read that Jesus Christ came for us and expressed his love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I love the last book of the last book of the New Testament. The last book of the Bible ends in Revelation 22, verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things say, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.
My friends, this is the story of the gospel. The story of the good news, particularly on this last day of the Christian calendar, we can expect with hope. A new beginning. When Jesus would come to dwell with humanity, that he would become like one of us. Paul says that he would come in humility and he would come in the form of a a little baby. And all those things that I've mentioned before about uh, him feeling, uh, us feeling uh, God's absence or feeling abandoned or forsaken, God says, I want to be with you. I I am there with you. And I think if... uh, uh, I was reading one of the commentaries I read a few years ago, said that every book, every, all 66 books of the Bible, in some form or fashion, tells us God with us. That he has never left us nor forsaken us. 